Sorrow that heaven can 
Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Wait and lift up thyself, my heart. And with the angels bear thy part. Amen. While you're still standing up, go ahead and try and introduce yourself to the people around you. Maybe you've seen them before. Maybe you have to move a little bit as people from the outside make their way up in here. Try and uh, move around just a little bit and say hello to some people. Save, save bet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a 90-10 on that one. Keegan. Once you've had a chance to say hello to some folks around you and people are trickling in, you can grab a seat. We will share some announcements and dive back into worship this morning. Welcome to Vine Community Church. We are glad and honored that you're here. My name is Treb Prater. I'm lead pastor here. We are blessed to have you with us. If you are here for the first time, we do want to tell you what a privilege and honor it is to have you with us. Uh, if you are here for the very first time or one of the first times and you've never filled out a guest card, we'd love to know that you were here. We'd love to follow up with you and share a little bit of information about how you can get involved. Um, nothing invasive. We'll just send you a quick little email, let you know that we were glad you're here. Um, but we'd love to have that information. Likewise, on the back side of the sheet, if you've got on this, pay, on this uh, guest card, uh, if you have a prayer request or a need or anything going on in your life, we'd love to take the opportunity to pray over those. We take very seriously that opportunity. And so if you have something going on in your life, 
We'd love to pray for it. Please give us that opportunity. It doesn't matter if it's something small or large. Just let us know. We'd love to, uh, to do that. You can take the bottom of this sheet. You can tear it off and leave it in your chair. Put it in the offering box in the back of the room. We won't pass a plate this morning. We just simply ask if you want to support our life and community. You do it either by leaving your offering there or you can do it online through Realm. Realm is how we stay connected throughout the week. It's how we share announcements uh, and info. You can manage all your giving and all that kind of stuff online. If you're not on Realm, then you're probably not up to date with things that are happening, uh, things, ways you can plug in and things like that. So stop by the kiosks, by the kids' check-in area, and we'll get you all signed up. It's simply a little email, and uh, you can either follow it with the app or you can get them directly in your e-box, in, inbox. It's pretty easy. But it's a great way to stay connected because we do have some things coming up that we want to be able to keep you up to speed on. Um, we're doing a picnic on the 27th of June, uh, kind of a COVID uh, remembrance picnic, and uh, we're going to meet back out where we spent the entire summer. And uh, we're going to do snow cones and picnic and games and worship. It'll be a lot of fun. We are still having worship in the morning here, um, but on the, at 6 o'clock at the park that we met at all summer, last summer and all fall. Uh, we'll be giving you more information, but we're going to be meeting outside on the 27th. So we'd love for you to be a part of that as well. So that's going on. The end of July, we're doing a, uh, a, an evening at the Bricktown Ballpark, uh, David Crowder concert and ball game. It's going to be a ton of fun. We're excited about that. Um, so we've got all kinds of fun stuff going on. We actually are set up to go on our all-church retreat in October. All the information stuff's going to be available through Realm. So make sure you're signed up on Realm so that we can get you uh, fully connected and you can have all that information. Uh, stuff's kind of happening this summer. Our life groups are actually meeting. Uh, they're having different schedules, so you need to visit our website and figure out uh, what your life group schedule is. If you're not connected, let us know. We'd love to help connect you. You can find out information about those life groups through our website or just ask Brandon and myself and we will get you all plugged in. Our women's Bible study is actually meeting all summer. They meet on Monday nights um, and you are welcome to be a part of that. We'd love for you uh, to do that. Uh, Cherry Rushing is going to be leading that up this summer and so they'll be meeting here. They have a, a, a realm group as well where they share all their information, so if you're you're on Realm, you'll be able to be caught up in speed. Just join the women's Bible study group. But they meet up here on Monday nights. I know that our men's Bible study has started meeting back again at 7 a.m. on Tuesday mornings at Chartel Cafe. They just started back up, and so we'd love for you to get a part of that as well. So those things are going on along with our life groups and things uh, kind of in, in that nature. So all of our stuff's kind of moving and happening this summer, and we're excited about it, and we think it's a great time to get kind of plugged back in as church begins to fall back into its beautiful kind of normal rhythm. So we are are uh, really glad um, that you are here. So we're into week 12 of this study, the book of Hebrews, and it has been uh, a challenge. Maybe it's not as been as challenging for you showing up and listening, but for me, it's been a beating. And uh, it doesn't get any easier this week. Um, this week, we're going to tackle two really difficult questions that are coming off what we learned last week when we talked about growth and maturity and all those kind of pieces. We're going to learn about the seriousness of pushing past the complacency of being uh, an infant in Christ into deep maturity. And we're going to wrestle with two huge, massive questions. And those questions are this. Is there a place uh, where someone can be or in a situation where someone can be where repentance is impossible? All right. And the second question is going to be, is it possible for someone who has truly been saved to fall away? 
And these are massive, huge questions with real implications that our author, in his middle of this sort of pause, is going to address. And so I think they're questions that a lot of us want to ignore because they're not easy to deal with. But they're really powerful when we see the beautiful truth of who God is behind them. So this morning, we're going to take some steps into the depth of what it means to truly grow in maturity in Christ and answer some challenging questions and find that God is fully alive and moving and beautiful and that we can hope and rest in him in the middle of these difficult questions. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive back into worship this morning. God, we do love you. We are eternally grateful, Father, for uh, the opportunity just to gather in corporate worship. We recognize that over the past year we've taken that for granted. We also recognize that, Lord, we sometimes miss the beauty of the call of what it means to be together as community. And so, Lord, we are grateful that we can come here to a place and worship you together. Lord, the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. It was meant to be lived in community. Every part of it, Lord, from the idea that you are a Trinitarian God to the picture of the community of the Old Testament to the church, Lord, everything in between. It's this incredible picture of togetherness. And, um, and so, Lord, we're grateful. We also are rem- reminded this morning that there are places in this world that still people can't gather. Some of those are COVID-related, and some are just the fact that they're living in places where gathering as believers is, is illegal. Uh, is not something that's possible. And so here we are taking it for granted whether we feel okay on a Sunday to get up and go to church and we have believers all over the world that don't even get the luxury to gather together. And so, Lord, we're reminded that the church of Jesus Christ is made up of all those who profess faith in Christ, Lord, and they're in different places. And so we pray for the church around the world. We pray for the church up and down our street. We pray for our next-door neighbors. We pray for the church in our state and our country. God, we pray that you would, would move deeply in the church, causing revival across this land, Lord, that the church will be drawn deeper into your word. Lord, less uh, afraid of tolerance and the pieces of culture and more in love with the actual true word of God. That we would wrestle with the deep and hard things and that you would show us who you are along the way. So Lord, this morning as we get ready to worship together and open your word, I pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would draw us into you, that we might experience the truth and the richness and the beauty of the sovereignty of God. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to prepare you to worship him. All of us walked in here with baggage, with stuff, with things. All of us brought extra stuff here today. Uh, Distractions or places we need to be in an hour or just the fact that we're frustrated or our minds wander or just dealing with heavy things or we're just feeling like we're in the middle of mediocrity. It can be any of those things or all of those things. And just ask the Lord to, to push those to the side that you might see him clearly this morning. And ask him to prepare you to worship him. Lord, uh, we turn this entire morning over to you. You are the God of the universe. You are in total and absolute control. And you actually invite us into a deep relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we would push back, push away from the immaturity and into the deep things of God. Lord, as we prepare to open your word and worship you today, God, create in us a place in our heart where you show us your goodness and your beauty. Lord, that you might be glorified and exalted. And we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand together and continue in worship this morning.
a seat. If you've got um, elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of uh, our Vine Kids time. They'll be heading out these side doors here, if you will. So uh, we're glad you're here. Uh, Truthfully, if you are here for the first time, we are honored that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Welcome. 
Um, our goal really is pretty simple. We want you to have an encounter with the risen Christ. We want people to be nice to you. Like that's the sum of our existence. And so hopefully those things happen this morning. Um, and we are glad that you've given us, given us your time. You've come at an interesting time. We uh, have been working through the book of Hebrews since we kind of stepped into the spring and summer. And we've been kind of plowing through this book. And this book is beautifully complicated, all kind of this one wrapped up, giant, incredible theological book that really deserves a lot of our time and attention. Um, but it's challenging on Sunday mornings. We hit the highlights and pieces. We try and move through every verse, but it just deserves so much attention. And we talked about a couple weeks ago, like the way that we're studying Hebrews is really kind of like going on a glass bottom boat ride, right? Like we can go over the reef and I can point out a few snails and things like that. But at the end of the day, until you get under the water and you're actually looking face to face with the beautiful coral and the fish, then you don't understand or we don't quite grab, grasp the depth of this book. But it's, it's an incredible journey nonetheless. And Hebrews is really written as a, uh, a warning and as a promise. It's written to remind people that there's a very real danger in falling away from the Lord. However, we are called to press deeply into maturity and trust the things that we know to be true about God. And so it serves as an anchor of sorts. It's a reminder of what we're tied so deeply to. And the book was written, or really it was a sermon most likely that was preached, was preached to a group of Hebrew Christians that were facing incredible circumstances. They were facing persecution, but they were also facing rejection from their families. Remember, these Jewish communities and Jewish people did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. They did not believe that he was the Messiah, that he was uh, the, the one that was to come. They were still living in expectation. In fact, they believed the opposite. They believed that Jesus might have been a rabbi at best, but truthfully, he was a blasphemer. And if you put your faith or trust in him because he proclaimed to be God, not only was he punishable by death, but so were you. And so the Jewish communities were calling those Jewish Christians, the Hebrews, back to the faith that they had walked away from. The original faith that they believed uh, was not brought to culmination in Jesus Christ, but instead was held to the law and held to Abraham and held to those, those Old Testament principles where we see Christ as the fulfillment of all that. And so there's just this incredible, deep pressure. And so what our author, our speaker, has been doing for the past 12 weeks, we've been looking at is he's been basically trying to show from a biblical standpoint, from an Old Testament standpoint, from a truth standpoint, why Jesus is better than all the things that you could put your hope in that have other that are kind of religiously tied, right? He's been talking about how Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. And we stepped into a situation where he said, Jesus is even better than the high priest, which would be the, the ultimate of all the religious people, right? In the kind of world of the Jewish person, the high priest was the culmination of kind of elitism and religious life. They were the one that went before God on behalf of the people. They made the sacrifices. They were religious to the point of being almost untouchable. And so he explains why Jesus is not only the great high priest, but the only high priest we would ever need. We don't need another go-between ever. And, and we stepped into that section two weeks ago. And we talked about the role of the high priest and why Jesus is this sort of magnificent picture of why we have access to holy, majestic, perfect, wondrous God. And then last week we hit this sort of weird turn where we have this thought break, right? So we're teaching on the, whole, on the high priest and then our author, our speaker basically stops for a second. He just says, 
almost as if I've got to get something else off my chest. Before I can go on, before I can continue talking about these deep, challenging theological things, I have to stop for a moment and I have to address something. And he has this sort of thought break. And we talked about what that meant. And we have those things all the time where, you know, we're kind of on this trail of thought and then all of a train of thought. And then all of a sudden we just stop and we go, but before I can even continue, you have to hear me say this. And that's almost what he says. He's like, I know you're not going to be able to hear the end of this. Talk about the high priest until I tell you something. And he kind of lays into them really deeply. He says, listen, so many of you are at a place where you should be teachers, but instead you're infants. You should be teaching these things, but instead you need to return to the basics. You've become complacent and you've become okay with your infancy. And he talks about it kind of in terms of like a disease. Like they've become okay with being complacent and just knowing the surface things about God. And in doing so, they're not pressing into maturity and they're at real danger. We explored all those things last week. What we're going to see this week in the week two of this thought break is that just what the danger is that our author is talking about. So last week he warned us about needing to be refocused. And he warned us about pressing into maturity and pushing past complacency and all those things. (laughs) <laughs> that's my wife no I'm just, you're good was it good what was it yeah it's Jen yeah it's Jen Allen it's just good it's Netflix no um I was like I think she's talking to me um Lord is that you um so he puts together these pieces refocus press into maturity and now we're going to see the seriousness of it and we're going to see the seriousness of what he's calling us to in two really hard hard questions. And I was telling Brandon this morning, these are not the type of questions that you typically dive into on Sunday morning. They're not the kind that you walk out and everybody high fives each other and you're like, man, I feel so much better about my life. Like, this is great. But this is what happens when you move through text and you run into segments of things that just need to be dealt with. Because running from them is exactly what our author warned us about last week. He said, if we just press into the things that are easy, we just press into the elementary, we're not growing. And if we're not growing, we're in a real danger. And so this morning, we're going to press into some challenging questions. And those questions are going to come in the form of two really big questions. And we're going to see them right up front. And that is, is there a situation or a place where repentance is impossible? All right? Now, most of us would off the top of our heads say, well, no, of course not. Repentance is always possible. We're going to run headlong into that question. The second question we're going to see is, is it possible for someone who is truly saved, who has tasted the goodness of the Holy Spirit, who is truly saved to lose their salvation or fall away? Now, these are big, deep, challenging questions, but they have very real answers. And our author is addressing them in a way not to kind of bury our audience, but instead to encourage them and push them towards maturity so they don't exchange the live religious experience with what it means to actually and truly know God. Because those are very different things. We can very much have religious experience and never know God. And that's what he's warning us against. And so we're going to dive headlong into those questions and see where it leads us this morning. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be picking up in the second part of this sort of thought break we have in the middle of Hebrews. Chapter 6, verse 4. We're going to go all the way down through verse 12. And we're going to, we're going to keep it to those two questions. There's actually a lot more in here we could dive into. But I figure those two questions are big enough for us to handle this morning and see where they lead us. So let's, uh, let's pray together and then we will dive into those questions this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word that is just alive. It's just living and active. And the reality is, God, it would be super easy to try and walk through our world, our life, having 
become content with a few isolated religious experiences, feeling a little bit okay about our moral life, and just wanting a bunch of pats on the back spiritually. But you give us access to the fullness of God. And we learned last week that we'll be able to do things like determine what's good and evil. We'll be able to know the very heartbeat of God if we press into maturity, if we, we want to know more about who you are, if we want to see the miraculous and the amazing, if we press past the elementary and the simple and into the deepness of God, that there is gifts and beauty and things that are waiting for God's people that God wants to lavish on his people. And he wants us to walk in fullness and depth and maturity. He wants us to be able to trust him. God, we know these are things you want for us. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us see past the easy and into the deep. To fall in love with a God who is so wonderfully complex. That on so many levels you're unknowable, but at the same time fully knowable. The juxtaposition that you give us between the unexplainable And the explainable is incredible. And so, Lord, this morning as we deal with some difficult questions and challenging texts, what I pray that we'll find along the way is a God who is fully in love with humanity, a God who wants us to know his heart, and a God who actually is calling us into a place of hope and rest. So, Lord, as we press deeply into who you are, past complacency, past infancy, and into maturity in Christ, teach us. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. To open your eyes to new things, to fall in love with the word of God. Ask the Lord to teach you this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. We do this every week or behind you, in front of you. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. As I say every single week, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Pray for the people around you. We want to be a community that cares deeply if the people around us have encounters with the Lord. Pray that God would soften hearts. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kiddo. Maybe it's just someone you've never met. Maybe you're here for the first time and you think it's a little odd. Just try it. Just say, God, in your heart, just move in this person. We don't know what the person next to us is dealing with. None of us know what they walked in here with this morning. It might be monumental, it might be small, but the truth is that God wants to speak to them. And so let's pray that God would do that and they would be unhindered in hearing those things. Let's pray for the people around us. Lord, we ask that you would do the teaching this morning. Only you can. Only you can enlighten our hearts. We will never discover you on your own. I will never lead anyone anywhere. The truth is, God, you do all those movements spiritually, and so we just ask you to do them. And so, Lord, open our hearts to your word, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I told you a few weeks ago that the book of Hebrews is almost unpreachable. And it is because it deserves so much depth and study. And the, and the author, our preacher here, actually agrees with me. He is at a place where he's teaching about the deepness of the high priest. And the only 
high priest we would ever need. And he's getting into the sort of the, the challenging portions that's calling into account the failures of the Jewish faith that were supposed to be brought into culmination with Christ that the Jewish people that don't believe in Jesus have yet to see the fullness of. And he stops and he just says, all right, I can't go on. I have to have you hear what I'm about to say before we can continue the challenge and the deep things of God. And that is this. Most of you that are hearing this, you should be teaching this. You've become complacent being babies in Christ. And that's a stern rebuke. He's basically saying, I shouldn't be here teaching you these things. You know this stuff. Not only do you know it, but you should be walking in it and you're not. You need to return to the first things so that you can grow and mature and become great and wise and teach and know the heartbeat of God and, and in all that, be able to truly rest in his sovereignty. And so he gives us these things. He says, refocus and grow. And it was a real challenge last week, right, to hear become, have I become complacent in my Christian faith? Have I become okay with a little back rub when I go to church to feel a little better? A little spiritual pick-me-up here or there. When this little daily devotional kind of world we live in where I read a few snippets that somebody else wrote about God's word and feel like that's good for my soul. Or do we wrestle with the real things of God, the deep, the challenging, the, the God's word himself? Do I have my own prayer life, my own time, my own understanding with him? I need to push past the easy, past the infancy, past the complacency, past the spiritual milk into solid food. And we stop there on this idea of refocusing and we're picking up on the why. And this morning, we're going to run headlong into the stern reality, the sobering reality, and the danger of what happens if we don't. And this is what we're going to see right here in the second part of this in 6, 4 through 11. So let's look at this together. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop useful for those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will throw, be thrown in and burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and your love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we pause for a moment on this thought pause. We talk about growth. We talk about maturity. And he says, this is the reason why. This is why I have to pause here and tell you that you have to be at a place where you're pushing past complacency and infancy because there is a real danger here. And those two dangers come in Two questions, and I've posed them all along because I want you to hear them. I don't want to hide from the complexity of these questions. And the first one basically is staring us in the face. And it is, is it possible, is there a place, a situation where someone can no longer be at a place of repentance? Right? Is there a place, 
a situation where repentance is no longer possible. And the second question that's going to come right on its heels is, in this situation that we just heard about, is it possible for someone who is truly saved to fall away? In other words, can you lose your salvation in Christ, right? And these are monumental questions that theologians have wrestled with and argued over and and contemplated over for centuries. And the reality is I think the answers to these questions are right here in our text, staring us in the face, and they're very, very important. And the first one really is this one where is there a place where we can no longer repent? And the simple answer to this question is yes. And you know how I know that? Well, because it says it right here. Right? There's no way around it. It says that there is a place. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have stared, or excuse me, have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age, that they fall away to be brought back to repentance because it's as if they are crucifying the Son of God all over again. So is it possible for someone to reach a place where repentance is not possible? The answer is yes. But now we have to examine the whys and what our author is actually talking about to fully understand the depth and the scope of what he's saying. So the situation is this. There is someone out there, and he's talking to a group of people, a group of church people that has had religious experiences, real religious experiences, real true things. They've actually tasted the Holy Spirit. They have seen the goodness of God. They have partaken in those things, and they have been given the promise of what's to come in the coming age, the gifting. They have seen these things with their own eyes. They have experienced them. And he's talking to a group of believers, and he's basically saying, maybe some of you are in that category. Where part of your life, you have truly experienced God's goodness in all of its fullness. Yet in spite of that, you have turned away. The word there is apostasy, which really just means I have rejected the things of God and I have chosen my own path. That I have tasted, I have seen, I have experienced, and I have fallen away. Meaning that I have made the movement to redirect my life away from those things that I've experienced and I've fallen away. So we've got someone in the scenario that has experienced these true, real good. Now, we're not going to pretend they're not the real things. The scripture tells us that essentially they are. They've experienced those real, true things of God, real religious experiences, real encounters with the Holy Spirit, real promises of God. And yet they, in spite of experiencing that, they have fallen away. They have become apostate. They have walked away from the things of God. And we learn that the conclusion of that is that it is impossible for that person then to return to repentance because it's almost as if they're crucifying the Son of God all over again. So if we look at these scenarios, right, we see that the person has experienced these true things. They've experienced the Holy Spirit says they've tasted in the heavenly gifts. Yet in spite of that, they have done something very significant. They have chosen for themselves a different way. And they are re-crucifying Christ. Now, what does it mean to re-crucify Christ? Well, essentially, Christ died once for all to give true, holy, set-apart, sanctified life to those who put their faith in Christ. He died, essentially, to give true life to people. The people that crucified Christ knew about Jesus, they knew what he offered, that he proclaimed to be the Son of God, yet they wanted their own way of life. 
They were threatened and didn't want what Jesus was offering. They wanted to essentially return to their way of life, and so they chose to have Barabbas handed over the murderer instead of Jesus. They crucified Christ because they chose a life that had them at the center. When we experience the goodness, the richness, the trueness of God, yet we choose ourselves in exchange for what God has offered us, we then say, no, not only do I not want that, what I have to offer is better. It's almost as if we're in concert with the voices that crucified Christ originally. Which is, I want no part of that. I instead want this. I want this way of life, my life, my world, my things, and not what Christ has promised. So in spite of having tasted all these goodness things of God, I have fallen away, chosen, drifted, left for myself, and it's almost as if I'm re-crucifying Christ. In other words, I'm saying the crucifixion of Christ is worthless, and I demand again myself over him. That's essentially what that kind of boils down into a nutshell. That's the scenario. The conclusion that we see in that little section is that it is impossible for that person in that scenario to come to repentance, which begs a couple of questions. Does God ever reject genuine repentance? And we can answer that question pretty emphatically with a no because we can trace it all the way from the Israelites to King David to Esau to Peter to you and I. When genuine repentance comes before the Lord, God always hears genuine repentance. He always has mercy on genuine repentance. So repentance in its genuine form, broken and contrite heart, going before the Lord, God always will respond. But what we're seeing here is not that. We're seeing someone who has tasted the goodness of God, who has chosen the way of their own life, has rejected all that Christ did, essentially agreeing with his crucifier, saying, I'd rather have him dead and have me. In that scenario, our author essentially says that that person is at a place where they cannot repent or will not be heard and will not be saved because of their hard turned heart that essentially has tasted the goodness of God and rejected it. Now, I think we can all kind of get there, right? Like it makes sense to me that if, if I've experienced that in the church and yet I say, man, that's crap. I don't want any part of that God stuff. Like I'm out of it. No way. I'm going back to my own way of life. Like I get that we get there. That heart is so deeply hardened that to call upon the Lord, it's not going to happen or it doesn't happen in trueness. And so that person cannot experience repentance because it's just not genuine repentance, right? It's not genuine confession, genuine repentance. True broken and contriteness, like what happens to King David, right? What happens to Esau? What happens to Peter, right? Where Peter's reinstated after his denial. What happens with, with you and I when we come back to the Lord just broken over our sin, right? The true repentance is not happening in this scenario. And so, as hard as it is to say, there is a scenario where repentance is not possible when someone turns from the goodness of God, chooses their own life, recrucifies Christ, essentially with a hard heart, has no desire or part to be there. Now, why is our author saying this to our Hebrew Christians? Because that's what many of them were doing. They were being pressured by their family and by people to return to the ways of Jewish faith, to the law, to Moses. That's what the entire first part of the book of Hebrews is about, is give up this Christ stuff and return to what is true. And half of the book of Hebrews that we've been through so far is saying, no, it's just Jesus. 
He's better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses, better than the high priest. He is all you need. He is completely and totally sufficient and supreme. Don't believe that lie and walk away from it in return. Yet many were. Many were hearing those things. and They were hearing the calls of the world and the calls of their family and the calls of their people. And they were saying, yeah, that is easier. And I don't want any part of this any longer. And it's a stern warning that says if we live in this infancy, we live in this complacency, drifting is a real and true thing. And if we harden our heart towards the things of Christ without genuine repentance, right, there is a place that we cannot come back from. But there's a second question that's really, really, really important. And that is, what did those people in that situation, that person experience in the first place, right? Was that person truly saved, right? And if they were, did they fall away from their salvation? Because that's actually a bigger question that's wrapped up here in this scenario, which is, okay, so I can get the idea that they hardened their heart and get the idea they turned away from God and get the idea that genuine repentance is fine. But, but you have this scenario where they, they tasted the good things of God. They encountered his word. They, they shared, they partook in the Holy Spirit is the actual phrase there. They had these incredible religious experiences that would be very much be tied with the things of God. So there's really two questions that are wrapped up in there. And that is that person, this situation, were they truly saved and then did they fall away? Or did they experience the things of God, great religious experiences, and never actually were saved in the first place? And both of those questions are horrifying and sobering. Because the first one, if the answer is yes, would mean that we can experience the goodness and fullness of God, be saved, and lose our salvation. That's terrifying. The second one is we can experience great religious things. We can have great experiences in church. We can actually partake in the things of God and actually not be saved. And that's terrifying, right? But... In the middle of those, there's actually an answer, and that answer is meant to cause us to rest. It's not actually meant to cause us to be in terror. This is a book of warnings, and it's a place of saying we have to be seeking answers for the deep things of God. It's a warning us from becoming and falling into those places. So we've got to look at it, right? So let's look at that question. Can someone truly be saved and fall away? All right? It's a real question at play. I'll give you the answer, right, and, and then we're going to consider a few things out of Hebrews. I actually could jump all over Scripture and find all kinds of great things, but I'm going to try and stick to Hebrews to support what I believe our author is saying because it will be in his words. Um, but the short answer is no, that you can not be truly saved, to have the saving, regenerative experience of the Holy Spirit, be part of the new covenant where God rescues, redeems, and saves, and lose that salvation. All right, we're going to see that very clearly. So what we've got to deal with the other reality, which is there is a situation in which we can have all the religious experiences in the world and never know Jesus. And we have to guard our hearts against that. So this is what he says. Let's consider that question. Can someone truly lose their salvation? So the first thing we're going to consider are the next few verses that come up in 7 and 8. So listen to 7 and 8. <clears throat> Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, that produces a crop, is useful for those whom has farmed and receives the blessings from God. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. So he gives a scenario basically saying, this is the, the, the kind of picture that he paints, right? There are two lands. 
Both lands received the blessing of rain and the farmer and all the things that God would do as a great provider. One land produces a crop, produces fruit and is healthy. The other land produces weeds and thistles and is useful for being burned. What we don't see is that both lands had great vegetation and then one of the lands lost all that. What we see in this scenario in in verse 7 and 8 is that you have two different hearts, two different lands, two different pieces, both with the same blessing. One produces fruit. That fruit is evidence that God is working and that picture of that heart is saved. And the other is this picture of barren thistles and weeds. So in other words, the fruit we produce is evidence on whether or not we've experienced the saving grace of Christ, right? True people that are saved, truly saved, they produce fruit. Now this is, Jesus himself uses these scenarios all the time when he talks about withered branches. The idea is that we're walking with the Lord and truly have been experienced the Holy Spirit and been saved and our lives produce fruit. They don't produce thorns and thistles. They're not destined to be burned. So one of the great hallmarks of being able to identify a life that is saved is the fruit that it bears. A life that is saved produces life. A life that is not saved produces death. It's a pretty simple picture, but it's right there in verse 7 8. We continue on. We consider verse 9. He says this. Now, after giving this sober reality to this church, a group of people in the book of Hebrews, where he's basically saying, there are some of you in here that are probably not saved. Right? He says this, he says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. So basically what he says is, listen, this is a sobering reality, but we're confident that you essentially are saved because you have things that accompany salvation. In other words, there are true, real things that accompany salvation. They are evidence. They are fruitfulness. They are not rejection. They are not places that they choose me. I don't want the things of God. They are fruit-bearing, and they are evident. So we know that someone is saved because there are things in their life that are evidence, things that accompany salvation, things that are only given by God. So the idea being is we're looking at two different things here. We're looking at a life that produces fruit, and we can see the things that accompany that salvation. And so while he's reassuring this group of people, he's warning them. He's also reassuring them, saying, look, even as we talk like this, as challenging as this is, as difficult as this is, dear friends, we're confident of better things for you. Why? Because I see the things that accompany salvation in you. It's reassuring. To say that I see the things of God that, are, that only go with salvation. That fruit, right? If we scroll up two verses, it's that land that produces life. It's that land that produces life. If we jump forward to chapter 10, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we see this other great promise in 10.14, where he says this. He says, because by one sacrifice, he, Jesus, made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So if chapter 6, verse 6, meant that you could somehow lose your salvation once you were truly saved, then verse 10 and 14 here really makes no sense. Because what it says is because by one sacrifice, Jesus, he made perfect forever those who are being made holy, meaning those that have been saved, those that are in the process of being sanctified, becoming more like Jesus, those who God is working out their salvation, all those things we've talked about for years. Jesus died once And they are in the process of being made holy forever. 
Meaning that that movement, the one I've been saved, is a forever process of growing into Jesus. It's not something we lose. It's something that we are promised forever. And the reason this is so beautiful is because we are going to have ups and down moments in our life in Christ. We're going to have moments where we choose ourselves. But the overwhelming things that come with a life of salvation, right, is fruit, a broken and contrite heart when we're convicted of our sin, and the fact that God is always and forever making us more like Jesus. And then finally, we'll jump ahead one more to 13, 20 through 21, as we get close to the end of the book. I'll give you this other little promise he gives us here, which is really great as well. Verse 20 in chapter 13 says, May God, the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will, that he may work in us what is pleasing to him, through Jesus Christ, whom be all glory forever and ever. So he says this, To the God of peace, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, he will equip you for doing everything that you need, all the will, all his work, all the good things, all things that are pleasing to him. This is a picture of the new covenant. So Christ is the fulfillment of the new covenant. He is, God has made a promise with his people and sealed in Christ's blood. It's a picture of the new covenant that we're actually going to celebrate at this table today that says God pursues us and God saves us and once he saves us, we are marked and sealed forever. It's the promise of the new covenant in Christ. And we put our hope and faith in Christ. We cannot be removed, cannot be taken, cannot be snatched. The covenant is eternal. It is not an ending covenant. Meaning that if we are truly marked and saved and redeemed, we cannot lose that nor walk away from it. It's the picture of the lost sheep. God will always be in pursuit of those, even when we drift, when we have been saved, truly saved. So if you put all these things in place, you look at this picture what we can confidently say is that the person that experienced these things in the first few verses, the goodness of God, did all those kind of things, the tasted in the Holy Spirit, and walked away, chose themselves, recrucified Christ, was never actually truly saved in the first place. Because to be saved is something that you cannot lose. However, there's another sobering reality to this, which is that person experienced a lot of great, religious, amazing, incredible things. They tasted who God was and all of his goodness, and yet they never truly knew him. And I told you this last week, one of the most fearful and sobering verses in all of Scripture comes in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, when the disciples basically have the scenario where Jesus says, some of you will come to me, and you will say, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not cast out demons? Do we not do everything you ask? And Jesus said to them, I will look at you on that day and I will say, away from me, evildoers, I never knew you. Which means they had all the religious tools. They had all the religious experiences. They had prophesied, they had cast out demons. They had done these things that seemed to be only things that religious people could do. And yet, Jesus says, you can have no part of me because I didn't know you. Which means we could have religious experiences in our life. You can show up at church every single Sunday and you can sing your heart out. You can get every t-shirt, you can listen to K-Love every day for the rest of your life and never truly know Jesus. And that's why these verses are so powerful. So what does that mean for you and for me? Well, it means a couple things. One, it's a stern warning. And it was a warning to the Hebrews. It's a warning to you and I to examine our lives. 
If we want to know if we're truly saved, we don't have to go any farther than the fruit that we bear. Is God producing fruit in your life? Is he producing broken and contriteness? Or is all of your religious experience built on the habit side of things? That I probably confess because, I don't know, I, I guess I should. Or do you have brokenness and contriteness when you sin? Does your sin break your heart the way that it breaks God's? Are your religious experiences just things that you feel? Or are they evidence of fruit that's produced in your life? And by fruit, we're talking about gentleness and kindness. The fruit of the Spirit, right? Those things that are, that are only given by God. Or at the underlying part of your life, is it still just rooted in deep, deep, deep selfishness? He's warning us to examine our lives. And he's given us this real true warning to these Hebrew Christians saying, most of you are just infants. And you don't have any idea if you're truly walking with the Lord. Because you just care about you. And it's a real warning. And I spent some time this week, I told Brandon this morning, kind of examining my own, my own heart going, Lord, I, I want to be at a place where I look, survey the land of my life and I see your reign and I see your mercy and I see your goodness and I look across the landscape and although not perfect, I see trees that have fruit, trees that have buds, trees that are growing, trees that are producing things in other people's lives, trees that are open to being used by you, trees that aren't mine. I don't want to look across the landscape of my life and my heart and just see thorns and thistles. That's a deep warning that if we're scoping the landscape of our life and all we see is barren thorns and thistles, we have to ask ourselves, do I truly know God? Or am I just using my religious experiences as a way to make myself feel better morally? It is a stern warning. <clears throat> but it's also a call to persevere and to press into maturity. It's a call to not be complacent. It's a call to say, God, I want to know you. I want to know you more. I want to seek you. I want to lay my heart out. I want to know the things that you have for me. As we saw last week, it's a place to desire that I want to be able to know the difference from good and evil. That's one of the great promises of a mature Christian is that they know the heartbeat of God. And last week we saw that part of that is knowing the difference of good and evil. And not just murder and not murder, but the true heartbeat of God. To press into maturity where I'm saying, I'm 39 years old. Actually, on Wednesday, I'll be 39 again. It's a miracle. <clears throat> 39 years old. And I'm not who I was at 22. All right? I want to be at a place where I'm growing in Christ, where I'm trusting him more with my life, my resources, my family, my financial world, my work world, my friends. All these things I want to be able to hand off. I want to be in the process, as we saw, of being sanctified forever being made more like Jesus. Not because it's what I do, but because what God is doing in me under the promise of his eternal covenant. I want to press into maturity. If I'm the same person spiritually today that I was at 22, I have to ask myself some really difficult questions. And that's what he's calling us to, that we should be teachers. We, should, we shouldn't be infants. And if we are still infants some 15, 20, 30 years later, we have to ask ourselves some real hard questions which is what's transpired in my heart. Have I ever truly, really surrendered my life to Jesus? Because a truly surrendered, saved heart produces fruit and it grows. It has its moments, it has its setbacks, it has its valleys, but the truth is that it's always being pressed and made into the image of Christ. It is being sanctified. You are becoming more like Jesus. That's the promise of the eternal covenant, that God will make you like him forever. And the process of making you more like Jesus 
And then the final thing that we see in all this is that it's, it's actually shouldn't be a place of fear. But it should be a place of rest. Listen to these last verses, right? These last verses in chapter 6, that we're gonna, or this section in 6, where he says this. He says, although we speak of this, right, dear friends, we're confident of better things, right? God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown for him and the help, how you help people continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order that your hope may be sure. We want you to become, not to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He says this, he says, essentially, we want your hope to be sure. And you know how you can make your hope sure? By hearing these things, by pressing your life into maturity and into fruitfulness and then resting in the sovereignty of God and just saying, God, I am going to trust and believe that you are who you say you are. That my life and the fruit that it bears and my contrite heart and the way that you have changed me and who I am is evidence that you love me and will never let me go and I'm not going to live in fear, I'm going to live in that. But for some of us, we need to hear the warning first. We need to hear the warning that we can experience religious things and never know God and we should call into question all that. Have I gone to church my entire life and never truly surrendered my life to Jesus? Have I walked through every religious door and every religious habit and all those things and never really known him? Do I have a personal relationship with Jesus where I desire time in his word, where I desire to know him, where I want to be known by him, where I long for time in prayer to grow, to move? All evidences of a life that's in pursuit of Christ, of a life that's been truly saved. And the rest there is that once that life has been secured and saved, there is no escape. It will never be captured, never be taken, never be stolen. Jesus says, the thief will never snatch you out of my hand. These are challenging and deep verses, but they have great promise in them. And we should both be warned and be secure all at the same time. And that's sort of the great paradox of Scripture, right? That it's this deep, real warning, yet this deep, real beauty of security. And that's actually the entire voice of Hebrews, which is be really aware of falling away. But rest in Christ. Don't become complacent. Don't go back to the way the world is calling you. But even when it's hard, rest in Christ, for you have been saved. Your life is marked, and these are the hallmarks of it, and you can see them. If you need evidence, I am showing you what the evidence is. Rest in that. If you don't see the evidence, then Go before your Lord and ask some questions. See the evidence. Rest in the anchor for your hope. The beauty thing about this is that this table is, is really an expression of that great promise. We talked about the eternal covenant. This is the new covenant. This new covenant was actually sealed in the blood of Christ. That Jesus so promised to save and redeem forever that he gave us, this is a great reminder of that. So that the cross and the crucifixion and the resurrection doesn't become a one-time, one-day-in-history, but that as the church, when we celebrate this meal, we're actually recalling this incredible covenant that God has made with us that lasts forever. That is it eternal. It is a covenant with no end and no breaking. And therefore, I can rest deeply that when I surrender my life to Jesus, when I am saved, when I am justified, that he is in the process of making me holy and I can rest in that eternal covenant. That no matter what life brings, 
no matter the challenges it has, no matter the difficulties involved, I can rest in the hand of God. And it is a covenant, which means it is unbreakable, meaning God will not break his own promise. And God's promise is to never let us go, that we surrender our life fully to him. We have been marked with that covenant, and we will never be let go. This table is, uh, is a picture of this incredible grace, this incredible covenant. Actually, on the night that he was betrayed, the night that all would abandon Jesus and run away, he gathered his disciples, and after they had had supper, he sat with them. And he looked at them knowing full well what was to come, and he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body, and it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after he took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is my blood. This is the new covenant, shed for the forgiveness of sins. That as long as we proclaim, take this bread and this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. This is that incredible picture. This is the promise for all those who put their faith and hope in Christ. This is not a denominational table. It's open to all those who have surrendered their life to Christ, who are partaking in the true goodness and saving grace of Jesus. The Bible also tells us that we should examine our hearts, just as Hebrews is telling us. Before we take this meal, we examine our hearts. We make sure that our hearts are right and true. That it's something that should be taken seriously with great reflection and contemplation. Essentially, what our author is telling us in Hebrews is we need to examine our hearts. We need to be aware, and we need to be warned, but we need to be secure. And that great paradox of complexity is what makes up the beauty of a life in Christ. This morning, we're still taking communion by means of COVID, um, which is we still had a bunch of plastic cups that we're using. And so uh, we have pre-sealed bread and juice. And as you feel called and led, we invite you to come down to the table, um, take a bread and take a cup, return to your seat, continue to stand and don. Our worship team will lead us in worship. But as we do that, let's prepare our hearts by going before the Lord in prayer this morning. Lord, we do thank you for uh, being a God who never, ever leaves us. That although sometimes we look at Scripture and we, we don't necessarily always know how to handle it, Scripture always supports itself and it always answers for us the questions that are plaguing. And so all we need to do is look towards Scripture. And sure enough, right here in Hebrews, the difficult questions it poses, it also answers. And beautiful kind of consistency it answers. And so, Lord, we celebrate the fact that there's some a real place where we can become so unrepentant, so genuinely hard, so rejecting of the things of God that we can't return from those. But genuine repentance is always met with God's goodness and grace. And so, God, I pray for genuine repentance in the heart of people. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would break our hearts, that you would make us contrite, that you would make us soft, and that we would return and genuinely cry out to you and that your hand will always save I also pray, Lord, that those of us in here this morning that are maybe questioning even our own salvation, wondering if we've become reliant upon religious experiences or attending church but never truly know Jesus, that we'd find ourselves face-to-face with a God who wants to save. And truly salvation only just means surrendering and opening my heart to the risen Christ and saying, Jesus, I invite you into my life as my Lord and Savior. Change me from the inside out. And then seeking Christ on a daily basis living into the salvation that's promised and that simple proclamation of saying, Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior. That's the culmination of salvation. And the rest is being lived out. It's you producing fruit in us. It's us 
uh, having a confessional heart. It's us being at a place where we surrender to you and want to know you more, giving over pieces of our life that we're growing, maturing in Christ, and that we can rest and find great safety in your hand. So Lord, as we celebrate communion and we take this together this morning, I pray that you would convict us, you would empower us, and you would challenge us. And we ask these things in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. As you feel called and led, we invite you to come down, take bread and cup, return to your seat, and we'll continue our time in worship and close out together. Let's share in this meal.
comes our glorious King, all His ransom to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing, Alleluia, Alleluia. pray together. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to celebrate this truth that you gave us this new covenant, this picture of Christ fully alive, that rescue and redeems forever, that calls us into this relationship with you to which we cannot be taken, moved. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would give us great assurance in that. Lord, that we can trust in your promises, but yet we hear the warning, Lord, to not exchange an experience for the actuality of knowing Christ. And so, Lord, as we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the reality of your death and the beauty of your resurrection. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would just let our hearts sing and celebrate, to not be afraid, but instead be excited about the anchor of hope that is Christ, to be secure in our salvation, surveying the land of our life for fruit and good things that are given by you, Lord, and rest in the assurance of the promise that when we surrender our life wholly to Christ, We are saved and saved forever. Let us close our time in worship this morning together.
That's the promise of these verses is that we can find true rest in Christ. Though our hearts be warned, they can also be fully secure. So examine the landscape of your life. Ask the Lord to produce fruit. And if you're questioning whether or not you've ever truly given your life to the Lord, then come visit with us. We'd love to talk with you and visit with you to make sure that your heart feels fully surrendered to the goodness and greatness of God. Where we can find true rest and true refuge and security for all eternity. Go in peace.